1: Hello and welcome to Pacific Review from ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Coming up, Vanuatu's Prime Minister has said the country is trying to fix corruption within its labour scheme, which saw dozens of seasonal workers sent to Australia on forged documents.
2: The suspect is already in custody and the uh, Commissioner of Police has been uh, cautioned to ensure that uh, there is integrity in the, the papers that they provide.
1: In Papua New Guinea, it's a game of chicken between In consumers and local businesses, after a ban on Australian poultry imports was announced, consumers say it will lead to soaring prices for the meat, while industry heads say foreign imports hurt PNG's farmers.
3: That uh, poses a risk to the local. poultry industry including smallholders live chicken industry
1: and we look at how a lack of indigenous and pacific islander stem cell donors is making recovery hard for leukemia patients in australia
0: despite having six siblings and four sons couldn't get a match
1: first around 100 seasonal workers from vanuatu are at risk of being deported from australia and new zealand because they hold fake documents Australia's Home Affairs Department is assisting the Ni Vanuatu authorities with an investigation and the processing of visas for PALM, the Pacific Australia Labour Mobility Programme, has been suspended temporarily. Meanwhile, Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsikow says he has concerns about the broader impact of PALM on Vanuatu's labour market. But in regards to the question of the fake documents, he says the police have matters in hand.
2: Once we were notified of this, the police undertook investigations, and the suspect is already in custody, awaiting uh, further investigations towards uh, prosecution. And the uh, Commissioner of Police has been uh, cautioned to ensure that there is integrity in the papers that they provide. It's a terrible thing that's happened, but at least uh, the authorities are now in control.
1: This is a critical program for many people in Vanuatu who earn money to support their families. A hundred of them have been found to have fake documents. Will this affect the scheme going forward?
2: Not necessarily because it doesn't necessarily affect the individuals. This is a problem that we faced in the past that we're trying to rectify in getting the Labor Department more involved in the engagement of people who wish to go to Australia and New Zealand for seasonal work and labor mobility. We still have an agency system where the agents prepare these people to go to Australia and more than often the papers are organized and prepared by agents and so you get a situation where because of how some of these people operate, they just go to one person who deals with everything. So it's not necessarily the fault of these workers who are in Australia. We're investigating the process by which they obtain these uh, fake documents. And at the present time, we could say that there is a problem with how the agents prepare our workers to go to Australia.
1: What do you think needs to be done, Prime Minister, to change that way the agents are working?
2: hopefully the the suspect is the culprit and we will deal seriously with agents who there aren't any shortcuts in the system and we're, we're trying to get the Labor Department to take a leadership role in these processes to ensure all the documents are legitimate and the processes are transparent.
1: Prime Minister Kalsaka, looking more broadly at the seasonal worker programme. We've heard many countries in the Pacific actually criticise Australia's programme. They've recently ramped up numbers from countries like yours from Vanuatu. Some countries have said that that's leading to a brain drain and a lack of workers qualified to do work domestically. What do you think about the scheme? Do you think it is leading to a brain drain in Vanuatu?
2: Well, the potential is is there. We're beginning to have those discussions as leaders of the Pacific where our people are concerned. It's a call on all of us to look back at all of ourselves, even the, the laws that we have in place, the regime that we have to uh, attract people to remain and work uh, within our jurisdictions, as well as we need to talk more concretely with Australian authorities and New Zealand authorities as to how the returns to Vanuatu not only be intrinsically beneficial to other workers, but so that we can have a sensible economy that continues to, to grow to enable a lot of these people who participate in Australia to return home as investors and partake in, in economic activity, as well as in, in partnership with our counterparts in Australia.
1: And Now, Prime Minister, I wanted to ask you about another concern, and that's the ransomware attack. We understand that it, it crippled a lot of industries, from hospitals to even the court systems there. How are things now
2: Everything is uh, uh, back online, but whilst the system is up and running, we need to identify, get to the bottom of the source of the, the intrusion. We have some leads, but it's too early for us to identify those. But at the present time, I'm confident that our people are working really hard day and night to ensure that we're fully back online and to ensure that we get down to the uh, the bottom of the cause.
1: Ishmael Kalsakau, the Prime Minister of Vanuatu, on the line from Capital Port Villa. Now to news that one of the biggest rifts in Pacific regional politics could soon be heading towards repair, following a visit to Kiribati by the chair of the Pacific Islands Forum and Fiji Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka. Kiribati walked out of the Pacific regional body last year after Micronesian countries objected to the election of Henry Puna as Forum Secretary General. Mr. Rambuka delivered an apology to Kiribati and carried out a traditional ceremony, seeking forgiveness from Kiribati President Tanis Mamal.
2: My hope that we would be seeing your government endorse the return of this great nation to your family in the Pacific. We apologize for how Fiji had acted at the time of the crisis in our association, in our family.
1: Fiji Prime Minister and the Chair of the Pacific Islands Forum, Sitiveni Rambuka there, i Kiribati President Tanis Mamo gave this response to the Fijian Prime Minister.
4: I would like to sincerely thank you, to commend your coalition government for taking a bold but ample step to restore the Pacific way of trust, respect and understanding within the region.
1: Kiribati President Tanis Mamao. So now the question is, will Kiribati return to the Pacific Islands Forum? Secretary-General Henry Puna says he's hopeful.
2: We're just waiting for confirmation as to when and how the formal return of Kiribati to the Forum family uh, will be uh, finalized.
1: Secretary-General of the Pacific Islands Forum Henry Puna there. Meanwhile, in Papua New Guinea, there's confusion over a government ban on chicken meat from Australia. As Caroline Tiraman reports, while local poultry producers are welcoming the move, customers worry they'll be hit with higher food costs.
4: Reports from PNG say the decision to stop businesses buying chicken meat from Australia was made before Christmas following a push by the Poultry Industry Association. Over biosecurity risks. The PNG government has yet to make an official announcement about the ban, but businesses were told they would not be given import permits this year. Wilson Thompson is from the PNG Farmers and Settlers Association Inc. and says the ban is necessary because an outbreak of diseases would be catastrophic for the local chicken industry.
3: PNG, uh, we don't have all the resources to deal with uh, biosecurity issues, manpower shortage, resources, geographical setting. So if we have an outbreak, it's very, very difficult to contain. So we must uh, ensure that uh, from the beginning, we must try to do what we can. So in this instance, uh, there had been uh, outbreaks of avian flu Newcastle disease and other uh, diseases that affect the chicken or birds, including wild fowls in the country. But we noted that uh, there have been uh, imports uh, of uncooked poultry products into the country that uh, poses a risk to the local uh, poultry industry, including smallholders or live chicken industry. And not only that, but uh, also the wild birds and all that. So we must try to protect that before... It destroys the industry, which is more devastating than uh, not doing anything at all.
4: There are two major chicken producing entities in PNG, including Zanag and New Guinea Table Birds, which would benefit from the ban, as Zanag general manager Stanley Lay explains.
5: The fact of the matter is that if people want to import product from Australia or from anywhere else in the world, they are welcome to do so. They've just got to make sure that those products are tested and and heat treated to the point where they don't pose a biosecurity risk to to Papua New Guinea. So it's not to say that that product is banned because you can, in fact, import poultry product out of Australia. You can, in fact, import poultry product out of Asia. That product needs to be cooked to mitigate the disease risks. Uh, Obviously, the main benefit for for poultry farmers in Papua New Guinea is that we are protected from uh, a serious risk of foreign exotic diseases are coming in. in, in to be quite frank, in a country where we don't have the capacity to deal effectively with a large-scale virulent disease outbreak in the commercial sector or in the SME sector, which is a significant part of the industry. That is by far the main benefit to PNG. Really, the, the cornerstone of the poultry industry's success in PNG, it is one of the largest SME sectors in this country. It is one of the quickest growing SME sectors in this country. And that is because it is easy for PNG poultry farmers to get engaged with small-scale poultry. We don't have a lot of disease challenges that could change very quickly. So we we, we think it's important that PNG has a has a high acceptable level of protection there, and uh, and that is enforced.
4: Concerns have been raised by consumers that the ban will add more burden on them as they are already paying high prices for poultry products. Mare Lineby, head of the PNG Women in Agriculture, says the government should have had discussions with the community before introducing the ban. The demand
6: here is very high and
4: there's not enough
6: supply. So uh, once the government does that, it has to be consultation between the local people and then importing such things. Because I don't think the government knows what they're doing. If the government is wise about doing that, they should say, OK, we're giving you a certain number of months to start, uh, you know, increase production to the main producers in the country. Say, OK, you have a time frame. You meet that uh, demand and then keep that continuously. I will ban all imported. I don't know for what reason they have banned it.
4: People are saying that 20 kina for four pieces of chicken is very expensive. But what about the uh, local producers who look after chickens? Are they cheaper?
6: When you multiply it at 20, I, about eight pieces still doesn't equivalent to one old chicken. You want to buy a local chicken 50, 60 kina that's locally produced, and then you buy one the pieces that are packed in the store. When you add them up to become a whole chicken, people prefer to have the whole chicken rather than the packets because the packets uh, it's much expensive. The government should have did a, a proper survey of what's on the ground, maybe talk to the two major chicken producers in the country.
1: Maria Lineby, head of PNG Women in Agriculture, ending that report from Caroline Tierraman. A stem cell transplant can be the difference between life and death for blood cancer sufferers. It's often necessary for the donor to be from the same ethnic background as the patient so that the risk of the stem cells being rejected is minimised. But as Dubrovka Volader reports, finding donors in Australia from the Pacifica and Indigenous communities
7: is difficult. When Kevin Maloney was diagnosed with blood cancer, he had one question for his doctor.
0: We saw... A leading hem- a hematologist who uh, told me what my options were, and the first question I asked him was, How long have I got? and he said, Nine months. That was it. We then had a, uh, a round table conference as to whether or not we would go ahead with the treatment. We then decided we would, and then had to find a donor.
7: There was a chance for survival, though, in a stem cell transplant. That's where blood-forming cells destroyed by chemotherapy in cancer patients like Kevin are replaced by healthy stem cells from a donor's blood. In many cases, the transplant is their best hope for survival, but all depends on finding a good match within their own family or from a registry of donors. Kevin was lucky. As a white Australian, he was able to quickly find a suitable donor and make a full recovery. But his friend, a Maori rugby player, was not so fortunate.
0: A good mate of ours called Peter Selby, who uh, of the Maori extraction, and despite having six siblings and four sons, couldn't get a match. And when I was recovering from leukaemia, Peter contracted it, I had a stem cell and lived, he didn't and unfortunately he died.
7: Part of the problem is that patients are most likely to match with a donor from their same ethnic background. But since Maori, Indigenous and Pacific Island donors are underrepresented in the registry, it's harder for patients from these communities to find the right match. Kevin Maloney's experience inspired him to establish a charity, raising awareness among Pacific and Maori communities about leukemia and how they can become donors. Experts say more work like this needs to be done.
1: Globally, there are around 40 million donors, of which I would say less than 1% would be from a Pacific Island community. So within Australia, we would probably be looking at only around a couple
8: of percent, maybe five something, percent, something in that order.
7: Lisa Smith is the chief executive of the Australian Bone Marrow Registry, which also registers stem cell donations.
1: That's really where the work needs to be done. We, we need to increase the diversity of the Australian donor pool to make sure that it matches the Australian patient population. And the best way to do that, of course, is to make sure that we can increase the total number of donors that we can recruit within Australia.
7: She says about 80% of stem cell donations in Australia actually come from overseas, particularly Germany. That's because in Europe, people only need to provide a cheek swab to register as donors and are later contacted for a stem cell donation once they match with a patient. This overrepresentation of European stem cell donors in Australia has made it even more critical for Pacific Islander communities to donate their stem cells for Samo in Australia in Lotu Ayuta, it was his mother- in- law's terminal blood cancer diagnosis that prompted him to step up and become involved.
5: me going through this with my mother in-law knowing a friend who a rugby player who had to go through this you just you don't know until you need it. And then realizing that our people are affected quite hugely, it's it's scary. It's it's massive. It's important.
7: As a rugby coach and community leader in Victoria, the 36-year-old encouraged most of his team to also sign up to become donors.
5: The night that we did it, we had about just on that one night from our club, we had about 67 people do it. So it's quite big. Like we, we got pretty much the whole club to do it.
7: But there are still some barriers to getting more Pacific Islanders to register for stem cell donations. In Australia, people register for stem cell donations only when they donate blood. A pilot project was launched through the registry to make it more accessible by using mouth swaps instead, like the European model, but that has now ended. Kevin's charity received funding through that, but has now been told they will have to fund swabs out of their own pockets, which could be as high as $100 per person. His team are now planning to ask other clubs in the wider community to sign up to become stem cell donors.
0: first foray was into the rugby clubs that we know and have great relationship with in Victoria. But it is equally applicable in all of those other sports and in every other state. And that's that's where we would like to see ourselves going. And that's why we have Operation Pacifica engaged nationally and in the future we would like to spread it internationally.
1: Kevin Maloney, founder of the Australian charity Tackling Leukemia, ending that report by Devrovka Voloder. The remarkable career of Fiji's former Human Rights Commissioner Imrana Jalal has been recognized by the World Jurists Association, who have awarded her the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honor. Named after the late Supreme Court judge in the United States, who was famous for her stand on women's rights and gender equality, the award recognizes inspiring women jurists who fight to defend and strengthen the rule of law. Ms. Jalal was responsible for driving groundbreaking legislation forward in Fiji prior to the coup in 2006, but now she says she's not only celebrating a prestigious award, but the fact that she and every Fijian is free to speak their mind
8: after 16 years of living in fear as a person who was fighting for democracy and the rule of law, we were targeted. Various individuals were targeted. When the illegal government of Bani Marama took over, I was threatened with rape. So I left the country in December 2006. Then I came back eventually. And then I was prosecuted because of my stand against the regime. They'd illegally taken over government and they were rounding up people and harassing them in the camps in the Queen Elizabeth barracks, having them dismissed from their jobs. It was very targeted against A handful of us initially, and then it became more widespread. This is a weapon that a lot of illegal regimes use worldwide to cower their opposition. And I mean, I'm not involved in any political party. It wasn't party political. It was about defending those who were being targeted by the regime, but also defending myself. And if you're a human rights lawyer and you're defending yourself and you're constantly in court, you have no time or energy to defend anybody else, let alone defend the rule of law. It's called lawfare. It's very very clever, strategic way to get people because it has the guise of legality. And of course, watching from a distance what's happening in Fiji has been fantastic. Freedom to say what you want is intoxicating after 16 years of absolute repression. Now, this never happened under the Rambuka regime. He did what he did, and I disagreed with what he did in 87, and I was arrested for it in 87, but he never went for anybody personally.
1: Considering that, you were the Human Rights Commissioner there, but you had to leave. But now Now, you've got this international award, this Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honor. And I've seen in Fiji media championing you as a Fijian lawyer. Do you have a conflicting feeling about that? Your time doing law in Fiji was cut short, but now, all these years later, you're celebrated.
8: I know it's ironic, isn't it? But that's just the way Fiji is. If I had gotten the Medal of Honor during the old regime, I doubt whether many of the media would have covered it. You see, one of the things the media did was practice self-censorship. The Fiji Sun was compromised because it was basically the Fiji government's media, and they never published anything critical. The Fiji Times itself was prosecuted for contempt of court. Fiji Village has always skirted close to free media and been very careful about what it said, but of all the media, it was the closest to being free. So I doubt whether I would have been celebrated in this way had it been under the old regime. But because we now have free speech after 16 years, it has allowed various media outlets to publish. Like, for example, the Fiji Broadcasting Commission was totally compromised and was under the control of the former attorney general's brother. And so even they did an article on me, the Fiji government webpage. This would have been unheard of. And many people have commented on Facebook saying, Imran, it's so funny to us to see you being celebrated by the Fiji government because it's a new regime, of course, and we've got a good minister. The Honourable Linda Timbulia and her co-minister is Sashi Kiran, both great women who really believe in gender equality genuinely. So, of course, they did a press statement on me, but it's quite unusual. I know you served as Human Rights Commissioner in Fiji. Did you have the chance to um, look at any cases when it comes to gender equality there in Fiji? I did and I spent a lot of my life changing policy and legislation. We had antiquated family laws which we inherited from the British system which was replete with discriminatory legislation and common law and so I spent a good part of my life 12 years changing that law 12 years you know with other women's rights group and I was the commissioner that led the reform in family law which gave unprecedented rights to women to seek custody of their children, to claim a share of matrimonial property, to get child support and support so on. So certainly a lot of my career has been about what I can do to promote women's rights in the law, but also beyond it. And I I spent a lot of time working in various organisations as a gender specialist and as and as a human rights lawyer. So I've had the opportunity, and various governments in Fiji have responded to that. And I remember trying to change the family law went through three successive parliaments because during those 12 years there were two coups. And so that is why I'm so committed to the rule of law. You can't promote women's rights. You can't promote Gender equality, unless there is a solid system of the rule of law. So, for me, the various interruptions since '87 has been a direct assault on the rule of law because it has not allowed us to progress as women. One of eight
1: recipients of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg Medal of Honor for 2023, Fiji's former Human Rights Commissioner, Imrana Jalal, who currently holds the post of Special Project Facilitator at the Asian Development Bank. And that's it from Pacific Review. If you'd like to find more stories from across the region, you can find them on our website. Just type ABC Pacific into your search engine. You can also follow us on Facebook. Find and like the ABC Pacific page and you'll be able to get our stories in your feed. And if you'd like to talk about any of today's stories on Twitter, we're at ABC Pacific. would love to hear from you. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Thanks for listening and do try Join us again at the same time next week for more news and views across the Pacific.